Well, welcome again. My name's Brandon. Good to be with you guys this morning. If you are new or visiting, uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Good to have you guys. Uh, just wanted to make a quick note about that vision night, especially if you're a college student, you might feel like, why would I go to something like that? That seems like a grown-up-y kind of thing to do or something like that. I just want to make sure you guys know you're invited to that. If for no other reason, then you get to see like the life of how a church thinks and leads as we seek to reach our city for the gospel. And, and we'd just love to have you because I think it'd be good for you to see that and to be a part of that, um, even though you're not cool enough to vote yet, right? Um, <clears throat> this fall, we've been going through the books of First and Second Peter, and those are letters in, found in the New Testament, and they're written to Christians who are uh, living in the Roman Empire, who are suffering for their faith. And what's happening is that their allegiance to Jesus as king was uh, actually changing the way that they lived and the things that they did. And that what was happening is that they were living as citizens of a different kingdom. They were living as citizens of God's kingdom who had been sent as God's ambassadors to their home in the Roman Empire. They had been sent as God's ambassadors to demonstrate and to declare the good news about the gospel so that people would see God. They might experience who he is and what he's like, and they might come to worship him. And so recently, as we've been studying throughout chapter 2, we saw how Peter describes what it looks like for Christians to demonstrate the gospel as we reflect Christ's character in, in various relationships that we have with society. He talked about the way that we relate to government and the way that we relate within our marriages, the way that we relate within the church, the way that we relate at work. And he gave these kind of four vignettes about what it looks like for us to demonstrate the gospel as we reflect Christ's character in and amongst those situations. And last week what we saw is that Peter articulated that the, the purpose for that, the, the reason why we're called to live the way we're called to live and act the way we're called to act and relate to people the way we're called to do so is so that we might have opportunities not just to demonstrate the gospel, but to declare it, to actually use our mouths to talk about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And so uh, Peter kind of tied together the two wings of our disciple-making airplane last week. We need the demonstration of the gospel. We need the declaration of the gospel so that we don't crash and burn, right? And so that's good. We, we don't want to crash and burn. That's bad. And so this, the, our passage this morning is kind of the wrap-up of, um, of this entire section. It's kind of the body of Peter's letter. And um, our passage this morning is kind of a recap of where Peter began all the way back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And he writes this in chapter 2, 11 and 12. He says, Dear friends, I urge you then as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul and live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. And this morning, as we wrap up this section we see that Peter comes full circle back to the truths that he began this section with. The truths that because we're God's people, because we're his foreign ambassadors, we're called to point him out, to, to reflect him, to, to point people towards him by rejecting sin and by doing good. And so as we study this God's word this morning, what I want us to see in Peter's recap of this section is that these imperatives, this call to reject sin and to do good, it's, they're both a direct implication of Jesus's victorious resurrection. And so as we study, what I want us to see is that Christ's victorious resurrection empowers our lives 
to be consumed by living for God's will instead of our own sinful desires. You see, throughout our passage this morning, Peter is going to contrast two opposing desires. He's going to contrast two passions. He's going to lay at odds two driving forces that change the way that we live our lives. And he's going to say it's either going to be God's will or your own human passions. And what we're going to see is that Peter's going to say, man, haven't you had enough? Haven't you had enough of living for your own passions and living for your own desires? Haven't you thoroughly tried that and found it lacking? Stop being consumed by sin. Instead, be consumed by living for the Lord. It's for your good. It's for his glory. This morning as we study Christ's victorious resurrection, it empowers our lives to be consumed by living for God's will instead of living for our own human passions. So with that in mind, let's pray and read the passage and study God's word this morning. God, thanks so much for you. Thanks so much for your word. We are so grateful that like, and I'm just so grateful I don't just stand up here and like try to say something impressive. God, but I stand up here longing to proclaim what you have already said in your word. And so God, I ask that you might fill me with your spirit so I might be able to do that with clarity. God, I ask you might fill me with your spirit so I might be able to do that with any power or effectiveness whatsoever because I don't have any on my own. So God, we want to sit under the authority of your word. Might it be good news to us as we seek to live and follow you. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, we're in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 this morning. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. And as a result, they don't live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless and wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they'll have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regards to the spirit. So the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and be sober-minded so that you might pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. And if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God might be praised through Jesus Christ. For to him be the glory and the power forever and ever and ever. Amen. Uh, If you know me, you know, I, I really love technology. And every year around this time, my favorite tech company releases its new products. And for months, there is hype about it. And there's all this rumors about what it's going to be like and how it's going to make your life better and all the cool features that the new thing is going to have. And finally, they announce the new iPhones. And then... S- then it's another couple of months, so you've got to wait to see, if they, you know, to see when they actually come in, because they like, give you a lot of hype to get you excited, and then they make you wait a little longer. And all of it's designed so that you'd be so infatuated, so interested, so consumed by that thing that you just have to have it. And often I find myself uh, watching way too many YouTube videos about 
what this cool new device is going to be like and how much better it's going to make my life. And and I spent hours making spreadsheets about like how to get the best deal. And if you know me, I, I really hate spreadsheets. Like I really hate spreadsheets, but I made a giant spreadsheet to try to figure out how I could get the best deal on this thing, which should tell you how much it matters to me, okay? And I spent all this stuff, and every two years I stay up really late or I go in really early to get mine on opening day. And for a few days or a few weeks, that new iPhone is really fantastic, and I really love it. But the allure of it kind of it fades pretty quickly, and I still enjoy it. I still enjoy using it. But what I find is that's just like another, it's just another thing. And while it's cool, it really wasn't worth the hype. And it's just a kind of a hunk of metal and glass with some magical electrical smoke that's bottled inside. And it basically does the same thing, just a little bit better than my last piece of metal and glass with an electrical magical smoke bottled inside did before. And what I realized after a few weeks is that, man, it, like that was totally not worth like all of the hours I spent thinking about it, all of the time I spent investing in, all the time I spent just longing for that thing. You guys would be proud of me. I didn't get the newest one this year. But I'll be honest, even though I decided weeks ago that I wasn't going to get one, I still went into the Verizon store on Friday morning at 8 o'clock. And I was like, you know, just, you know, who knows? Maybe they'll have one, you know? Whatever, I don't know, right? And so I walk in, and I'm like, do you guys have any of the new iPhones? And, and the guy at the store is like, yeah, we totally do. I have no idea how that happened, but we definitely do. And he's like, I'll go in the back and get him. So he comes out, and he holds the boxes, and I'm like holding the box in my hand. I'm like, oh, the new one, right? And a few minutes later, I walk out of the Verizon store with my trusty old iPhone in my hand. And as I'm driving to work that morning, I just spend time praying, God, I don't need that. But I, I really, really want it. But I don't, I don't want it. I don't want to have to have that thing more than I want to be consumed by you. I don't want the longing for that to be the thing that drives my life and changes my actions. I want you to be that thing. So I'm just like driving to work and I'm just praying like, God, would you just like free me from thinking about that and being consumed about it? And, and I know there's some of you here this morning I think like, that is about the dumbest thing I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> like, you, could, you couldn't care less about any form of technology or some cool gadget, but for every single one of us, there is something, there are desires in our heart that threaten to consume us. They threaten to consume our time and our energy and our thoughts and our emotions and our money and our dreams and our fears. And maybe for you, it's getting a new house or a new job, or maybe it's finally being able to have kids, or maybe it's making sure that your kids, once you have them, are really successful, or that they're safe. Maybe it's finding a spouse, or a fear that you might never find a spouse, or maybe the fear that you might lose the one that you already have. Maybe it's a longing for a sexual fulfillment. Or maybe it's just a desire to be wanted by somebody. And all of those surface-level desires, they're rooted in heart-level desires. And maybe it's for you, it's the desire to be in control of every situation or circumstance. Or maybe it's the need to have power or authority over someone or something in your life. Maybe it's a longing you have for a friend or a family member or even society at large to approve of who you are and the choices that you've made. 
Or maybe it's just like this insatiable desire to be comfortable. And you hate responsibility, and you hate pressure, and you do everything to avoid it. You see, something will consume your life. Someone or something will be the driving force that determines how you live your life. It is absolutely unavoidable. You see, to be consumed with something or someone such that it has a controlling influence in your life, that's like the actual definition of worship. That's the definition of worship. And worship is the thing that God designed every human to just be epically good at. That's what our purpose is. Like, we are designed to worship. That is at the root level of of the design of every human heart. It is the single thing we are absolute best at. You see, we're, we're meant to be consumed by something. We're meant to be consumed by God. But what happens all the time, too often, is that we're consumed with someone or something other than him. The word Peter uses to describe whatever that thing is in our passage, he uses the phrase, evil human desires. And if you've been around River City long enough, you know, like, I don't really dig into the Greek because I'm not really that smart, right? And sometimes it's just confusing, but I think this was really helpful as I studied this week. The, the Greek word that's translated, evil human desires, is the Greek word epitumia, and what it literally means isn't, it, it doesn't have this, it doesn't literally mean evil, it, it means over-desires. It literally means an over-desire, it's like an insatiable craving that you have. You see, most people think that, that sin is, is about breaking the rules and going after some forbidden fruit that God says you're not supposed to have. But I think uh, Tim Keller, he really helpfully points out, our biggest problem is, is not desires for, for forbidden fruit. Our biggest problem is over-desires. There is something about our sinful hearts that longs to take something other than God and make it the thing of most importance to make it the ultimate thing. And it's, it's not wrong to want children. It's not want, wrong to want a job. It's not wrong to want a spouse. It's not wrong to want a better job or a new house or a vacation. It's not wrong to desire sexual intimacy. It's not wrong to desire a great meal or a fantastic drink. But the deception of sin is that it takes those good desires and turns them into over-desires, desires that become the controlling influence of our lives. It becomes the thing by which that drives our decisions, that drives the actions that we take. You see, and that's the definition of idolatry. We take good things like technology or homes or spouses or kids or jobs or money. We turn them into God things. We turn them into ultimate things. We look to those things to give us what God can only give us. Jeff Vanderstelt, which really helpfully points out, he says, what happens when we turn good things into God things is that they become destructive, controlling things. You look to your job or your kids or the approval you so desperately long for, the success you so badly want to have, you look to it to be the thing then in which you find your significance or your value or your worth. And, and when it inevitably fails you, when it inevitably lets you down on the promise that it never said it would make to you, but that you bought into, it leaves you longing, it leaves you unsatisfied. What happens is Romans chapter 1 says, when those things, they, they don't satisfy like we want them to. Romans 1 says that we don't give up on them. Romans 1 says that we pervert them and we twist them. 
and we just give ourselves to them more and more and more, and we try to bend it, and we try to turn it into something. And so we overwork and we ignore our families, hoping that if we would just work more, then the job that we long for would really come into being. Or we're hyper-controlling of our kids because we need them to have the success that we want them to have, or we need them to have the, the safety that we want them to have. Or we keep pursuing new and different ways of sexual intimacy, or we just eat and eat and eat, or drink and drink and drink to numb the feelings that we have, or to escape the pressures that we have, or we just buy more stuff to dis- distract us. What Romans 1 says is that God actually gives you over to those desires. God lets you run after that stuff. He lets you twist it, and he lets you pervert it, and he lets you long after it in ways that destroy you. Because he knows that even if those things satisfy for a moment, they will never last. They will always, they'll always fade. And they will never be what you long for them to be. They will never give you the life and the joy and the satisfaction and the fulfillment that you so desperately long for them to give you. And God gives us over to that stuff because one day he knows that we'll find it, that we've had enough of it. It's by God's grace he lets us keep coming to those empty wells so that one day we'd say, enough. Enough of this. We'll want to be done with it. Which brings us to Peter's first command. He says, don't be consumed by sin any longer. Don't be consumed by living for your sinful desires any longer. Verse 3, for you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies and carousing and detestable idolatry. He says, haven't you had enough of it? Haven't you tried it enough? Haven't you tried pursuing your life and your satisfaction in a person enough? Haven't you tried enough finding your value and your identity and your worth in your job or in your career or in your kids or in your family or in your money? Haven't you tried enough of it? Haven't you tried enough to know that it never works? Peter lists here, a few things that are contextualized to the people he's writing to in the Roman Empire, but they're pretty big issues for us today. Debauchery, it means any behavior that's lacking moral constraint. It particularly has to do with sexual acts, but it's also about acts of violence. Lusts refer to all of the human impulses that tends towards immorality, but in this list it probably has a lot more to do with specifically about being the excessive indulgence in sex or in other acts of self-gratification. Drunkenness refers to the excessive acts of eating or drinking, such as would be practiced at all the festivals that celebrated the Roman gods and goddesses, which would often just lead to incredible drunken orgies and the kinds of sin that no one, no one wants to talk about. But Peter doesn't, this list is not like some exhaustive list of the evil human desires. It's not an exhaustive list of the over-desires that control our hearts. There isn't enough papyrus in all the world to write down that list. Instead, as one commentator writes, All these terms, they refer to practices that have one thing in common, a lack of self-control, a character flaw that leads to behaviors that are self-destructive and in violation of God's standards and are harmful to you and to others. And so Peter says, 
be done with that. Be done with sin that's not just hurting you, it's hurting others. You see, our, our world loves to say just like, do whatever makes you happy. Do whatever makes you feel good. Whatever is pleasing, whatever looks good, whatever tastes good, whatever feels right, just do that thing and don't let anyone for any reason tell you not to be you. And while the world loves to look at the Christian community and the biblical standards and see it as a community that just oppresses people, the reality is that the worship of self-fulfillment and the worship of self-actualization brings about more oppression and more destruction than they could ever imagine. Pornography, that's, that's totally okay. But sex slavery and the objectification of women, that's more prevalent than ever. There's no way that the lust of your heart giving over into that over and over and over again, there's no way that that leads to oppressing other people, does it? Of course it does. Do whatever makes you feel good or whatever fulfills your dreams. Why are we surprised then when an ever-increasing number of dads walk out on their families? As a father, I can guarantee you, like the thing that makes me, like sacrificing to serve my family and my kids, that's not whatever makes me feel good. Like being a father is hard. It involves sacrifice. It's not the thing that brings you the most. It's not like that thing that you look to and think, oh, that's what I really want. The problem is that even though these things should be so blatantly obvious, it should be so blatantly obvious that those things never satisfy and they really end up destroying us and others. The truth is that we are absolutely blind to that fact without Jesus opening our eyes by the power of the gospel. See, we're blind to the slavery and to the destruction of the power of sin without Jesus. Without him, you don't even know that what you're longing for won't ever satisfy. The only way to be done with sin is to be set free by Jesus' victory and to be empowered by his resurrection life living in you, living through you. Peter says in verse 1, therefore, he's pointing back to what he just said in verse eight, chapter 3, verse 18, because you've been saved by Jesus' resurrection victory over Satan and sin and death, that's how you can be done with sin. And so verse 1 says, how? Verse 1, by arming yourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had. By arming yourself with his resolve to suffer instead of to sin. One commentator writes, Jesus consistently chose to obey God, even though it meant the suffering of being misunderstood, being rejected, and finally being tortured to death. And his full humanity meant that although he was tempted to sin and thereby to renounce his calling, he constantly had to decide to obey God and to suffer the consequences. And Hebrews 12 tells us why. The author of Hebrews writes, says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus, Jesus chose to obey, and, and even if it brought about suffering, because there was a joy that was laid before him. It was a sitting at the right hand of the Father with everything in subjection under him, so that one day, so that on the last day, he might welcome us as his blood-bought people into an eternity of enjoying him. You see, Jesus knew it was worth it. 
was worth it to obey. And so what happens is when we look at the cross and we see Jesus, our suffering Savior, who died to pay the penalty for our sin and to set us free from the slavery that we're into sin, we say, enough, no more. I don't, I don't want to do any more. I don't want any more sin. Why would I pursue the very thing that Jesus died to save me from? By the way, that's one of the ways that you know if you're a Christian. Like you actually want to obey. You actually want to be done with sin. You experience what the Bible calls godly sorrow. It's, it's not just feeling guilty about sin and wanting that feeling to go away. That's just worldly sorrow. It's that you long to actually be done with sin. And I just want to point out, it's not that you think you should be done with sin. It's not that you think you're just supposed to obey. It's that you want to. There's a longing in your heart that says, I want to obey you, God. I long for that. That doesn't happen without the Spirit of God living inside of you. Verse 1 says that you reveal that truth. You show that heart change that's brought about by the gospel when you choose suffering instead of sinning. Verse 1, for whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. He goes on to give the context of that suffering in verse 4 when your friends or your family or your society, when they're, they're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless living and their wild behavior and they heap abuses on you. J.D. Greer writes it this way. He says, they can't understand why you wouldn't do these things because they don't have a hope that goes beyond this world. And so naturally they try to get the most out of this one. And when you live in light of a hope that has an eternal consequence, it disturbs them. Because deep down, it brings up the question, is everything I'm living for wrong? Because that's wildly different. When we live in view of verse 5, that we'll have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead when we live as though this world is not our home, when we live as exiles, when we live as God's foreign ambassadors who are on assignment for him on his mission, who are not at home yet. We should expect that to not make sense to the world that we live in. Like that should be the normal response. It shouldn't make sense. And for some, they'll oppose that because that, that questioning in their hearts, they fight that and they hate that. But for some, by God's grace, they'll be woken up by the smelling salts of a gospel witness and they'll come to their senses. And so when we're willing to be the lowest on the social ladder, when we're willing to be ostracized and marginalized and pushed to the edges of society instead of sin, we show that we have Christ's attitude. We show that we have his resolve. When we're unwilling to prioritize our career at the cost of the flourishing of our wives and our families, even giving up the approval of our bosses, we show that we have Christ's attitude. We're armed with his resolve. When we choose to thoroughly enjoy sex, but only inside the bounds of marriage, no matter the opinions of others, no matter if your boyfriend or if your girlfriend will leave you, if you make that choice, we show that we have Jesus' resolve. When you won't join in drinking parties or using drugs, even if it means losing the approval of your friends, we show we have his attitude. When we choose to give generously and we choose to give sacrificially instead of hoarding resources for our own enjoyment or our own self-security, we show that we are armed 
with Jesus' attitude. And when we choose the Cobb salad with low-fat lime dressing instead of the spicy chicken sandwich with waffle fries and sriracha ranch dipping sauce, even though our co-pastor gives us crap about it every time, (laughs) we show that we have Jesus' resolve. (laughs) And I know that sounds really stupid, but for me, the choice to say that food's not what's going to satisfy that I want to honor God with my body, and if I'm obese because I think that food will be the thing that gives life and joy, the thing that fills up my heart, then it's something that needs to get rejected. Let me tell you, that feels like suffering because, man, the spicy chicken sandwich is so blasted delicious. But even in that little choice, it's, like a, it's one of those little battles. It's not the war, but it's one of the little battles in which I'm saying, Jesus, you satisfy more than food will satisfy. Jesus, you satisfy more than a new iPhone will satisfy. Jesus, you satisfy more than sex will satisfy. Jesus, just you. And so Karen Jobes, just a brilliant commentator, she writes, In order to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to embrace our calling, and to face daily a society unfriendly to the values of following Jesus, Christians must be armed with the same disposition and the same resolve that allowed Jesus to set his face resolutely towards the cross. Suffering for our relationships with God then becomes something to be expected, not something to be avoided. I think in our country, we are, we are obsessed with the idea of avoiding suffering. There aren't any verses about that. Like, you, you can't find them. There aren't any verses that say, avoid suffering at all costs. All the verses say, pursue Jesus no matter what it costs. And the only thing that's going to equip us to live lives That way is the attitude and the resolve of Jesus himself, which is ours in one way. It's by faith in the gospel. It's by faith in his resurrection victory over Satan and sin and death. His blood shed for us so that we might have life. And Peter says that's what will equip you to live out the rest of your earthly lives, no longer motivated by human desires, but instead the will of God. You see, Peter doesn't just say we need to stop being consumed by living for sin. He says we need to start being consumed by living for God. Instead of, instead of being consumed and mastered by our destructive over-desires, we need to come under God's kingly rule, under his authority, and be consumed by living for his will instead of our own. J.D. Greer, again, he says it this way, the whole point of this exile life, the whole point of this alien life we're living is to give glory to God, and we are to stop sinning, but that's not all. We are to start leveraging our lives to bring glory to Jesus. And in order to do that, we've got to be consumed by living for him instead of living for our own desires. We've got to be consumed by living for God's will instead of our will. God's will is simply this, that we'd look like Jesus. What's emphasized in these last verses is not just that you or I look more like Jesus, but that we together, that we as God's people look more like Jesus. You see, our witness is inherently communal. You cannot do it on your own. 
If you remember, I said the thing that linked together the evil human desires are supposed, that we're supposed to be done with are all about a self-focused overindulgence and a lack of self-control. Well, the things that tie all of the instructions that tie that like living in God's will together, like the very first thing on the list that ties them all together is self-control. You see, over-desires are about giving in to things that consume us. That we don't have control over. It's like an addiction. But Peter says, don't be addicted to, to that anymore. Be consumed by living for God. He says, be alert and sober-minded. The ESV says, self-controlled and sober-minded. Not to be con- we're not to be controlled by someone or something other than God. We're not to be controlled by a substance. We're be- to be controlled by a someone. God himself, verse 7, be alert and focused so that we can pray. Remember at the beginning of this section, all the way back in chapter 2, probably verses 8 or 9, it said that you're God's people, you are his royal priesthood. And if you remember, what I said is that being God's royal priesthood means that we represent God to people, but we also represent people before God. And so what Peter is saying is that you have got to be alert. You have got to be controlled. You've got to be focused not on pleasing yourself, but on pleasing the Lord if you're going to actually be able to pray for people that need him badly. We can't be distracted and numb to the pain of this world if we want to take seriously our call to be God's royal priesthood who brings people before him in prayer. Verse 8, we're to love one another deeply or earnestly. The love we're to have for one another, it's a love that covers sin. It's a deep love, an earnest love, a relentless love, a committed, selfless kind of love. You see, loving others, even when they sin against you, is the single best way to get rid of the effects of sin in a community. Loving others, even when they sin against you, is the single best way to get rid of the effects of sin in a community. And it's the best way to show the world the love of God who has loved us enough to die for us on a cross when we were his enemy. We're to show hospitality without grumbling. And it's really easy to welcome people, to host people that you like when it's convenient. It's harder to host people that you like when it's inconvenient. And it's really hard to host people you don't like when it's inconvenient. Yeah, but you see, Jesus offered us shelter under his wings when we were shouting, crucify him. So like him, we show hospitality. Not because it's convenient, but because it's needed. Verse 10 and 11, we're to use whatever ways God has gifted us to serve others. It's easy for me as a preacher to use this platform I have every week in front of you guys to serve myself. To work really hard at preaching so that you guys will think that I'm really smart or that I'm a good preacher, that you'll like me or that you'll respect me. But the gospel frees me to use the ways that God's gifted me instead of serving myself to love and serve you to be a blessing to you and to be, to be ultimately for that to be about God's glory. And so whatever ways he has gifted you is for the same purpose, that you might use the ways that he's gifted you to love and serve others instead of serving yourself. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the fact that God invites us into his plan of redemption, the fact that God gives us the honor or the privilege of being his ambassadors, that is a really terrible idea. Because like, 30 seconds of self-reflection reveals that 
like you and I are like, we're the most inefficient. We are the most unfaithful. We are probably the most unqualified people to be used by God for like eternal purposes ever. But God's not about efficiency, is he? God's about glory. And so when he uses you and I who don't have the strength that we need, who do not have the power that we need, who are not qualified, who are not ready, who are not able without him to do incredible things that people might come to know and love and follow him, then he gets all of the glory for that. That's great news for you. Because like without God being about his glory, we would be so screwed. Like we would have, there would be no life, there would be no joy. But God's about his glory, and so he invites us as a weak people to be in part of his great kingdom growing. And so when we pray, and when we love, and when we show hospitality, and when we serve in ways that we never could without his strength, he gets all the glory. The end of verse 11 ends this way. So do it with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God might be praised through Jesus. For to him be the glory and the power forever and ever and ever. Lastly, verse 7. There's an urgency by which we're to seek to live out God's will because the end is near. Peter is not like trying to use a scare tactic here. It's not this apocalyptic doomsday thing. It's about imminence. Something is coming. You need to be ready for it. It's like as a parent when you're driving and you hear that sound in the backseat that your kid makes right before they're about to puke, right? You know that that's coming. And so you take action because you don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. And so you know you need to be ready. Peter is saying it, the end of all things is imminent. It's coming. One pastor explains it this way. God's work in history has several acts. The promises to Abraham, the Mosaic covenant, the coming of Jesus, the building of the church. And the only one left is the return of Jesus. And so we are in the last act. We have no idea when this act is going to be over and we are to live as though we could see Jesus at any minute. And we are to live power to live so our friends who if he comes now would not be ready we're supposed to live as though they might meet him any minute and so it's with a sober sense of urgency and imminence that we lay hold of christ's victorious resurrection which is the one thing that empowers us to be for our lives to be consumed by living for his will instead of our own sinful desires so that God will get all the glory as people come to worship him as the only one who is worthy of worship. And so my question to you this morning, have you had enough of sin? Have you had enough? Or are you done being consumed by the over-desires of your heart, or are you blind to the worthlessness and the destructiveness of your own desires? And it is my deepest longing that the relationships you have with people in this community, as we seek to live out the gospel before you, that it might wake you up by God's grace to like just the worthlessness of what you long to live for other than you. You might be thinking, wow, big surprise, it's church. Stop doing bad things, start doing good things. Didn't see that one coming. 
if that's, if that's where you ended today, then you, you missed the point, right? That's not the extent of it. The extent is that what I hope you heard is you actually cannot do that without Jesus living his resurrection life in you and through you. It is literally not possible for you to do it. You need Jesus doing it in you and through you. And so the invitation is not just to obey, it's to submit to him. Have you ever submitted your life to Jesus? Have you ever said, Jesus, my life is no longer going to be about me. It's no longer going to be about my desires. It's going to be about you and your desires. Have you ever said that to him? Have you ever submitted yourself to Jesus? You might not know what it means to offer all of your life over to him, and that's okay. He'll show you. He'll walk with you. But right now, the invitation is that you might lay your life at his throne. You might say, Jesus, whatever you ask of me, it's yours. Man, my longing is that for some of you, that morning would be this morning. (laughs) By God's grace, he might reach out and save you. If you've had enough of sin... What do your actions reveal about your attitude or your resolve towards being done with it? I was really convicted about that this week. I think far too often when I see sin in my own life, I take one of two wrong approaches. I either rationalize or compare my sin to other people's in order to downplay the seriousness of it. And what I need to do is remember that Jesus died an excruciating death on the cross so that I could be done with it. And that every sin is a big deal. Sometimes when I sin, I feel like a failure or I feel ashamed or I feel condemned. When that happens, I need to remember the good news that the writer of Hebrews goes on in Hebrews 12 to say. He says, have you forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his sons? My son, don't make a light of the Lord's discipline. For those, uh, do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And he chastens the one who he has accepted as his son. So when we sin and we feel that the conviction of God, that our sin is out of bounds, that it's out of line with his will and his desire and his desires, that's actually good for us. Because it's God's grace that doesn't bring condemnation, it brings conviction. And that's good because it brings godly sorrow. And godly sorrow is the result of us looking at our sin and then looking at the cross. Godly sorrow brings about repentance and new life. You see, repentance, I think a lot of times people just think that repentance is just stop doing bad things, start doing good things. But repentance is like, repentance is about changing what you're looking at. See, the first part of repentance is about acknowledging that what you're looking at, what's driving your life is a lie. That this person or thing or whatever it is, this over-desire will satisfy, it will give life, it will fulfill. And so because you're staring at that and you're longing for that, you run after it and that's what leads you into sin. And so repentance is about saying, that is absolutely a lie. And then you turn and you look at the gospel and you say, here's what's true. The person and work of Jesus tells me what's true about who God is and it tells me what's true about who I am and it tells me what's true about what actually gives life. 
And so you look at the gospel and you change directions. And what happens is as you set your heart on the gospel, as you set your heart on Jesus, your life actually starts to change. It starts to look different because the thing that's consuming you, the thing that's driving you is not an over-desire of sin. It's a longing, it's a right over-desire of God, which is what we were meant and designed to pursue with everything that we have. And maybe you're here this morning and you, you long to be done with sin, but you just feel like you keep coming back to empty wells and you don't know how to stop. And so you just try to try harder. You try to want it more. You try to like discipline yourself. You try to punish yourself. You try to like make yourself feel bad. You try to get accountability. You kind of do all these other things. And while there are so many of things that like accountability that are good for that, None of those things will change your heart. They're just putting up fences. What you need is a new heart. You need to ask Jesus to give you his heart, to long for his desires, to have his passions, to have his will living inside of you. You need to say, Jesus, I cannot do it on my own. I need your resurrection life living in me. That's the one way. That's the only way you're done with sin. And so what happens in communion, I know we're going long this morning, what happens in communion as we, as we close is that we remember the gospel. We remember the person and the work of Jesus and we remember the good news about the gospel by which we have been saved and set free to live a new life. You see, communion is a picture. It's a reminder for us about the gospel. The bread reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us as he lived the life we couldn't live. And the drink reminds us of Jesus' blood, which was shed for us as he died the death that we should have died in our place. And communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It's faith in Jesus' resurrection that saves you. That's it. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember the gospel and to remember Jesus, his life lived for you, his death died for you so that you might no longer live for yourself, but live for him. So the bread and the juice are in the back and you just take the bread and you dip it in the juice and as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together, if you've put your trust in Jesus, go back and take communion and celebrate how good the gospel is. And celebrate that together with your friends and your spouse or whoever you're here with. Whenever you're ready, you can go back and take communion. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for you. We are so grateful for your resurrection victory over Satan and sin and death. God, we just come to you and we just confess that without you, we have absolutely no hope. But it's your, your life lived for us. Your death died for us. Your rising from the grave that gives us hope and it gives us life to live for you. And so God, we just come with glad hearts remembering the good news about the gospel which has set us free. God, and asking that you might empower us by your resurrection life living within us to be done with sin and to live for you. We pray all these things in your good and gracious name, God. Amen.